0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association. I'm Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of March 2018 and this is episode number 56. In this programme, I talked to PhD candidate Carol Henderson about her research into the military tribunal appeal system in Middlesex, where men sought to gain exemption from conscription and military service during the First World War. I spoke to Carol from her home in York. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us why and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Hi, Tom. Uh, yes, um... Well, like most people, my interest in the Great War began with a photo of a relative who'd served in the conflict. In my case, it was a great, great uncle. I knew my great grandmother, his sister. She died when I was 12. And sometime after her death, I was looking through some photos with my grandmother. I used to love doing this and listening to the stories behind the images. I think I've Probably always been a historian at heart. Uh, anyway, this particular image is a very striking one, and I remember my grandmother telling me that he had been her mother's favourite brother, and that he had been killed in the First World War. She told me that his name had been Willie, which had made me giggle at the time, but she didn't really know anything else about him. My grandmother had been born in 1920, and presumably her mother had not really talked about it. Anyway, this photo had a profound effect on me. I was. 14 years old and studying the war poets at school and I wrote a poem about him which I will not inflict on you. His his story sort of lodged itself into my very romantic young soul. Um, anyway my life took me off on all sorts of paths but I always remained fascinated by the Great War. It sort of bubbled away on a back burner and then I, I came across this photo again about 10 years ago when I was going through some stuff with my mother and I decided that It was high time that I found out what had happened to him. After all, I naively thought, how difficult could it be in this technological age to find a soldier of the First World War? Well, um, I soon found out exactly how difficult it could be. I realised that I knew nothing about my family, absolutely nothing about the British Army or how it operated. And despite being interested in it all my life, my knowledge of the First World War was surprisingly sketchy and confusing. So my first job was to find his name and imagine my despair when I worked out my family tree and discovered that he was called William Smith, um, which I think was probably the most common name at that time. But I did discover that he and my great-grandmother came from a family of 14 children and that their father had been a Victorian London firefighter. So um, picture the images of Victorian firemen with those steel helmets and no other safety equipment and imagine my pride and amazement that I had such a hero as a great great grandfather. Well he and his wife brought their children up in the massive London Victorian fire stations. Each fireman was given a flat and they lived above the shop as it were. When he retired in 1909 he took his family to Letchworth Garden City which had just been built at the time. By this time there weren't that many of the children still living at home but Willie was one of them and he joined the Hertfordshire Territorials. So I now had his name and his regiment. It was simply a question of educating myself about what all of that meant and finding out where he'd gone and when he would died. Well, to someone who knew nothing about military history, that was quite a tall order, but I did eventually succeed. Willie was mobilized on the 4th of August, 1914, and being territorials, they were given the option of whether or not they were willing to serve abroad. Uh, Willie must have agreed as he went with his battalion to France the 5th of November 1914 where they were thrown into the middle of the fight at Ypres. These were almost all very young men with no combat experience at all so this must have been quite an experience for them. They were put into the 4th Guards Brigade of the 2nd Division where they earned the nickname the Hertfordshire Guards. Um, They were in the front line over Christmas 1914, didn't fraternise with the enemy contrary to popular belief and they fought at Festubert, Luz, Besson, And Willie survived all of this until the first day of the Third Battle of Ypres, or Passchendaele as it's often called. He was killed alongside a huge number of his comrades on the 31st of July 1917, and his body was never recovered from that battlefield. I went with my mother to the Menin Gate to find his name on the panels and to witness the last post ceremony. And I remember standing there and just knowing that I wasn't finished. I'd found him, but I'd become completely immersed in the history. So what should I do next? Well, I applied to do the MA in Britain and the First World War that was being run by Professor Gary Sheffield at Birmingham and then Wolverhampton University. And this was the beginning of my proper education. Um, This is an excellent course. I don't mind plugging it here. I can't recommend it too highly to anyone who wants to further their knowledge of the Great War. It's taught almost exclusively by military historians, and this gave me the sort of solid understanding of the war that I needed. This is a course that encourages you to explore the social and political issues at stake as well. And this is what I found myself looking at in more detail. The civilians, basically. I studied propaganda, the media, and politics, and the problems facing the British that were to do with their empire. I didn't actually write a single essay about the Western Front, which really surprised me. Um, Perhaps I should go back and do another one and write some essays about it this time. Anyway, I graduated from this course and was still hungry for more. So I applied to do a PhD and here I am in my second year. I'm very pleased and grateful to have been given a scholarship by the Western Front Association to help me in my studies. And I'm looking forward to telling you more about what I'm doing.
0: So now you've fallen into the cult of the First World War. Which is, ex- your, your, your journey is exactly the same as mine. I got my grandfather and then I ended up <laughs> being sucked in. So what are you studying in your PhD?
1: Well, I'm studying the men who resisted conscription in the First World War. And I'm using the Middlesex Appeal Tribunal records that are available online at the National Archives. Anyone can go and have a look at them. Now, almost without exception, when I tell anyone that I'm studying men who resisted conscription in the First World War, the immediate response is, oh, the conscientious objectors, to which my reply is, well, yes, but they are only a small part of the story, to which I almost always get a very bemused look. So, to explain, the conscientious objectors are a very important part of the story and were undoubtedly a brave and determined group of men. But on the whole, they represent something in the region of less than 10% of the men who resisted conscription. In fact, it's becoming apparent that the figures vary from region to region, and I know that work is being done on that by other scholars as well. Um, I'm in the early stage of my research, but I'm discovering data that would back up that theory. Uh, For example, in one area I've looked at, 23% of the appellants were conscientious objectors, and in another area there were none at all. So this raises a lot of important questions on many levels, and it, this will be something that I will be looking at in more detail. Although the conscientious objectors are an important part of my research, they don't represent the majority of men who attempted to resist the call to arms. So over, over 90% of the men who resisted conscription in the First World War did so for one or more of the other grounds for exemption that were offered. Um, in very broad terms, a man could apply on the ground that he was unfit For military service and some men successfully proved this through the tribunal although many of them didn't and this medical grading changed as the war went on and this will also form part of my research another way in which men could appeal against conscription was to claim that they were doing work of national importance but this was problematic as well The list of certified occupations changed on a regular basis throughout the war, and many amendments and alterations can be seen in the Appeal Tribunal documentation. You can follow it through. You can see them almost making it up as they went along to try and solve the manpower crisis. As the home front adjusted to the demands of the war and brought in measures such as employing women in essential jobs and bringing men back from the fighting front, skilled men, it becomes clear that this this ground for exemption was far more complicated than it at first appears. But far, far and away, the most common ground for exemption that was cited in the Appeal Tribunal documentation that I'm coming across was that the man and his family would suffer serious domestic and or financial hardship if he was sent away to the war. It must be remembered that there was no recourse to state benefits at this time, although the government were bringing in relief funds and there was charitable uh, help available as well. But many families were particularly hard hit. Many of the men I'm studying were self-employed. They had mortgages, they had loans that wouldn't be met if their businesses were to close. These men had wives and children to support. They often had extended family commitments as well, looking after elderly or infirm relatives. Sometimes they were partially supporting female relatives who had been widowed as a result of the war, or they were the last son left from the family. Now, of course, Many of the men who were away fighting had the same problems. So what makes the men who I'm studying think they could be treated differently? My particular channel of inquiry focuses on how their decision to attempt to resist conscription was viewed by their contemporaries and how they tried to justify their position. In an age in which we're told there were fixed notions about masculinity and gender roles, what arguments did these men make? and and what arguments were being put forward by others about them. It may interest your listeners to know that I've come across several examples of soldiers writing from the front to complain to the tribunal about the conscription of a brother when it had been previously agreed amongst the men of the house who would be the one to stay at home and look after the family whilst the others volunteered to join up and fight. And this shows two very distinct forms of masculinity, protectors and providers.
0: So... Why did you choose this subject and why do you think it's important?
1: Well, as I said, I'm very interested in the civilian aspect of the war and I'm interested in it from the male perspective. Um, As far as the fighting men are concerned, apart from the original professional army that went to France in 1914, this war was fought by civilian soldiers. Um, A lot of work's been done on the volunteers, but there's been very little historiographical focus on the men who were conscripted from the beginning of 1916. And these men interest me a lot, and it would appear that many of them accepted the inevitable when their call-up papers came, and they went to war when their time was up. They would have been under a lot of pressure to conform and do their duty on the fighting front. But their assimilation into the army and, and the navy, let's not forget the navy as well, has been almost completely unmentioned in the history of the First World War until very recently. More detailed work is now being done on the new draft, how they were incorporated into the system, and I find that very interesting. So I'm interested in The conscripts on the fighting front but even more neglected are the men who attempted to prevent or at least delay their conscription into the armed forces and as i've already said the conscientious objectors have received a lot of attention in the historiography of conscription and this is because of their notoriety at the time Um, this was newsworthy copy at a time when this was a very unpopular and unpatriotic stand make. Their story is important and has been and is still being well researched and documented. They made history at the time and they've left a lot of information for us to study and analyse. But that's not the case for the other men who resisted conscription. A lot of the problem has been that the government ordered the destruction of most of the military service documentation immediately after the war came to an end. And some people have suggested that this shows a sinister motive, but that's not necessarily the case. There were two exceptions to this destruction order, and they were the Middlesex Appeal Tribunal documents that are now housed at the National Archives in London, and the Lothian and Peebles Appeal Tribunal documents that are housed in the National Records Office of Scotland. And these are the only two complete sets of Appeal Tribunal documentation that were deliberately saved for posterity by the government after the war. And as I've said, it's the Middlesex records that I'm looking at. I'm not the only person studying the conscription issue in a, in a new light. And it would appear that a lot of military service tribunal documents have been showing up in archives all over the country. It seems that not everyone obeyed the government directive to destroy them. And in some instances, it's the documentation from solicitors' offices, for example, that's, that's coming to light as well. So We're discovering there's a wealth of information out there about ordinary men on the home front, And this ties in with work already done by academics such as Professor Laura Ugolini, who's who's my tutor, in her book Civvies, which examines the position of middle-class men on the home front during the first world war and it puts another perspective on the british people who were fighting this war the manpower crisis on the home front is usually only seen in terms of women taking on roles that wouldn't have been considered suitable for them in peacetime but there was a, a lot more to it than that there were a lot of men on this home front as well but we're only just beginning to discover their stories
0: so i wonder if you could tell us some of the stories that you've actually uncovered of people going to tribunals and, and what sort of things they said and, and what sort of and what actually ultimately happened to them. Them.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'll give you two or three examples. Um, a very interesting example of a man peeling for his son. Um, Samuel Beach was a carting contractor and he ran, so he claimed, the largest heavy haulage business in Acton. It had been established for 35 years and he states that before the war he'd employed upwards of 17 men who worked 20 heavy horses. So this is not a motorised business. These men are carting stuff around mainly by old-fashioned horsepower. But these were, effectively speaking, the equivalent of our lorries now. There's evidence that he did have some machinery. There's paperwork in this file that states that his steam hauling machine had been commandeered by the army for use in France. So he was losing men and equipment, basically. Samuel had one son, Henry, who was 36 in 1916, and was married but not attested. And it's for this son that he's appealing for exemption from military service. So it's not Henry himself who's appealing, it's his father. And this happens quite a lot in the documents that I've been looking at. This is an important point to remember. These men are not necessarily unwilling or unable to go to the war on their own behalf. The appeal is often being made by an employer, and that employer is quite often one of their parents. Um, All of Samuel's pre-war male workforce had gone to the war, all of them and there's only Henry less. Samuels replaced the other men with older men and boys, but he complains that the result of this is that the horses are idle and important work is being delayed, or just simply not done. He also says that the large number of boys now being employed means that they need more supervision and management. Um, there's no evidence in the documentation that he employed any women, or that he was expected to do so although we do know that women did do some heavy haulage work later in the war. One thing he does say is that there are no women in the family who'd be able to manage the administrative side of the business. This is the job that his son does, and it's on this point that he argues for his exemption. And Samuel's main argument is that he himself suffers from heart disease. He's in his late 50s, and it's his son who runs the business. In fact, yeah, actually, I think he's more like in his early 60s, this man. So he's he's getting on a bit. He provides a bit of supporting document from local businesses to argue his case for keeping his son out of the army, and that's another important point. Um, they often brought in, you know, Um, supporting evidence from businesses to to help them out. Samuel and Son are carting coal and coke to the local munitions factories. And there's a letter from uh, the wonderfully named Belcher and Gibbons coal merchants who are complaining that they have coal waiting to be collected. delivered to napiers now napiers were a a company who had made cars before the war and they were now manufacturing airplane parts and they needed a regular delivery of coal and coke to keep their machinery running now it's clear that samuel and son also cleared rubbish from these munitions factories and napiers writes to him to ask that they give this matter their immediate attention they've put up a new building as a result of expanding during the extra war work they were due to the extra war work they're doing and they complain that if the earth is not cleared Their thoroughfare will be blocked. So they're creating a lot of rubbish that needed to be cleared. And this was what Samuel's company were contracted to do. Another company are concerned about the health of their employees if their rubbish is not cleared daily. They've taken on more people. And this has caused the hygiene problem that needed to be addressed as a matter of urgency. So you really can see the logistical problems that were happening on the home front as the... The war effort was ramped up. And on top of that, he's also contracted by the local council to provide sanitary services. This includes clearing domestic rubbish from the local streets and watering the roads. Um, in the days of horse-drawn traffic, it was very important to clean the street on a regular basis to prevent you know, unhygienic conditions. And the council is further stipulating that he only sends men who thoroughly know the district to water the streets, as otherwise it leads to great confusion. And he claims that he's provided over 5,000 horses to the council in 1914- and had provided 783 horses and men between April and May 1916 alone. So this is an incredibly busy business. And it's worth noting here that some of these local councillors may have been sitting on the military service tribunals as well, so they would have been aware of the difficulties being encountered in their community. So by December 1916, he's employing 23 to 25 men and lads he calls them. So he has more men working for him than he had before. And he claims that this is the largest business using heavy horses in the district. So he's managed to find a workforce from among the men who are available, And his business has expanded but also by this time carting has become a reserved occupation and it may be that men had gone into employment with him hoping to stay out of the army but it's more likely that the men he's employing were either too old or too young to serve but samuel is fighting to keep his son and he claims that he not only does all the office work and management but he also looks after the horses when they are sick, and he repairs machinery when it breaks down and it then becomes clear this is a very lot very large case this one it becomes clear that henry was an engineer and that he'd left His old trade to help his father when his father's health failed. And there's a note of bitterness here when he states that had his son stayed in his previous employment, he, and I quote, would have been more entitled to wear a war badge than many men engaged in engineering at the present time. So he's complaining about the way he feels his son is being treated. But ultimately, the only way that Henry stays exempt from military service is to go back to his old trade of engineering. And he gets work with who are engaged on a government contract to make bomb-dropping apparatus, presumably for aeroplanes. The only time in this lengthy file of paperwork that we hear anything from the Son himself is in 1918, when he wrote to the tribunal tell them that he had a protection certificate because of his trade as an engineer. This is in response to an appeal by the National Service representative, who was checking that he was still in a job of national importance. They did this on a regular basis, and presumably Henry, Henry satisfied them because he remained exempt for the duration of the war. And I would imagine he probably carried on helping his father out too, but this was how he stayed exempt. His father didn't manage to uh, successfully appeal for him despite all of the work that he's doing. So you can see these files bring up a lot of detail about the realities of life on the home front and provides a snapshot of a community that we would not be able to glimpse, really, from anywhere else. Um, And we can also get an idea of some of the people who worked on the tribunals themselves. And I've encountered one of the Middlesex Appeal Tribunal military representatives in many, many of the cases I've looked at. And I'm beginning to get an idea of the sort of man that he was. He was called John Kent, and he had the most beautiful handwriting. And every time I see it, I think, oh, good, what's he going to tell me now? Now, one case in particular stands out and this is actually two cases because it involves two brothers, Arnold and Claude Wiggins, both claimed to be master butchers and these two cases provide a very detailed account of a local family dispute. Arnold was the sole proprietor of Two shops, and he states that he had supplied meat at a discount price to munitions factories for their workers. He'd lost four of his five employees and he claimed to be partially supporting his parents. However in October 1916 John Kent drew attention to the fact that Arnold's case needed to be heard alongside that of his brother Claude, who was claiming to be the sole support of his parents and stated that Arnold didn't help in any way at all. So the two men were brought up before the Appeal Tribunal in November 1916, accompanied by their mother. And the result of this was that Arnold had his case dismissed and he was sent to the army. And Claude was given exemption on the condition that he carried on the business and supported his parents. However, John Kent is not satisfied at all, and he took his case right up to the centre Tribunal. Now, this is unusual, it's rare to do this, but it becomes apparent that this military representative went to considerable length to investigate Claude's claim, and he did some detective work within the local community. It's hard to tell whether or not somebody informed on this family, but I, I think that probably did happen. Anyway, John Kent discovered that he had lied about his age, Claude had lied about his age, and was not, and had never been, a master butcher. Um, when he first made a claim against his exemption, Claude had stated that he was working in a shop in Bollowbridge Road in Acton, but Kent sub- subsequently found out that this shop had been empty at the time of the claim and had only opened a few weeks later. He then sent one of the local military representatives to investigate and this detective had found no sign of Claude. The shop was being run by both of the parents, the parents that Claude was c- claiming to be supporting, and this had been the case of on two occasions that the military representative had visited this shop imagine him in disguise making purchases whilst making notes and it then turned out that the mother had at least two other shops that she was busily running the long and short of it was that kent managed to obtain claude for military service and it may be as i said that someone in the local community informed on them at some point and a, and a third example i'll give you a different um from a different area in middlesex this is uxbridge which was a relatively rural area and this is another um case of two brothers um the man who's appealing um is the elder brother and he's above military age and these two brothers run a food warehouse um but they also supply paraffin oil as well to a fairly rural community um and they'd lost six of their seven male employees and their last one was almost 18 years old so he would be going soon um they'd bought a motor van which William, which is, sorry, he's the brother that's being appealed for. He covered the extensive area that they supplied and he made 700 to 800 calls a week. So this is a lot of um, business that they're doing, a lot of ground that they're covering. Herbert, the the elder brother, manages to do what he can by horse and wagon, but he had neuritis, so he was becoming quite infirm. And the local tribunal were prepared to grant exemptions for William, but the military representative objected in February 1917, and then he lodged an appeal in March. William managed to stay exempt until October 1917, but it's apparent that there was increasing pressure on him. To join the colours. The Theob- they, they were called the Theobalds. The Theobalds asked their customers to write to the Appeal Tribunal. And this is another interesting example of, of people getting the local community involved to support a claim for exemption. And, and this file contains 12 letters from people living in the districts that the brothers served. And it's possible that these were only a small selection of the letters that the Appeal Tribunal have received. But it's clear that they, the area served by the Theobalds was rural and isolated, and many people living beyond easy access of a shopping centre. The main concern raised was was that they would not be able to get supplies of paraffin oil, which of course was crucial in these regions that have neither gas nor electrical connection. And on the 26th of November 1917, William made a final plea on his own behalf, and I'll just read it to you because it's sort of sums it up. It says, my serious difficulty is that I have again seen our country people and they implore me to use every effort to obtain sufficient exemption to tide them over the most serious winter weather. I've done everything humanly possible to obtain a man to do this and failed utterly. Is the above possible to my undertaking to to do voluntary training uh, or do any and every other available thing which I am most willing to do to gain this end for a short period? And then he says, I am seriously not shirking the matter, but have exactly stated the case as a real fact. He wasn't successful. He was conscripted and he joined the Navy on the 13th of February 1918. So we don't know what happened to his customers and how they managed to get through the winter of 1917, 1918 without the supplies of paraffin oil.
0: So Carol, once you get your doctorate, what are you going to do with it?
1: Well, I'm hoping to, first of all, write a book. i definitely want to be um getting this information out in book form um i want to do research work teaching i'm doing some teaching at the moment which i'm really enjoying and just carry on uh researching the first world war
0: carol thank you very much for your time thank you you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition